This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology by Martha Elias Downey. This book invites readers to expand their theological, spiritual, and relational horizons by sidestepping the notions of hierarchy and verticality. Go Wide employs the lens of spaciousness to explore biblical stories, theological concepts, and the nature of God, showing how biblical narratives often disrupt the status quo. If you are looking for an accessible, inclusive, fresh take on an ancient course of study, pick up Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology, now available on Amazon. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're clearing up some common misperceptions about the book of Revelation and the idea of Judgment Day, while we consider a poem by the Native American author Sherman Alexie. The poem is called Crow Testament. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird, And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey there, Jean. So fun to talk with you again on such an interesting topic today. It is. I'm looking forward. And hi, listeners. Today, we're starting a two-part conversation about one of the most misunderstood and misused books in the Newer Testament, Revelation to John, more commonly known as the Book of Revelation. And it's fitting that we're diving into Revelation today because Revelation is the very last book in the Newer Testament and the topic of the last full chapter in Jennifer's book, Permission Granted. We're going to wrap up season one of Wild Olive on this. We built season one around Permission Granted, and we hope that you've enjoyed pairing a poem or two with each chapter as a way of engaging with the ideas Jennifer brings up in each chapter. Listeners, let me tell you, Permission Granted is a game changer and we have a special offer for you. We'd like to give five listeners a copy of Permission Granted as a thank you for listening. We know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and we're honored to have you spend some time with us. If you email us at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org, we'll answer. And the first five listeners to send us their street addresses We'll get a copy of Permission Granted in snail mail. Remember that? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Snail mail. I love snail mail. And others who respond, up to 50 of you will also get a wild olive sticker or a fridge magnet. You can tell us which one you want when you email. And now, let's talk Revelation. Jennifer, how would Mm. you like us to begin? Yes, this is an important one, right? When I think about talking about Revelation in a classroom or with a group of people, I always want to invite people to talk about their associations with it. I tend to approach most biblical topics that way, but this one seems to be more charged than other passages. And what I often hear are people 
will, you know, raise their hand or they'll just say, I mean, I had nightmares as a kid mm-hmm. because of this. I had some really interesting stories over the years in terms of some families truly anticipating it playing out and they would sit their children down to talk to them about how to handle the next couple of weeks as if it's about to unfold, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of interesting anecdotes, I suppose, about the various ways that people are taught to take this so very seriously. So that's the one thing I wanted to name in particular is the general sense of how people have been taught to internalize the story. But in particular, I think of all the people who as children were traumatized by it, honestly. What about you, Jean? What do you think of when you first think of the book of Revelation? Well, I have never read the book literally. Mm. I've never read it as a picture of something real that's going to happen in the future. And I'll show you what a deep thinker I am. I think the first time I read it, my total thought was, well, that was weird. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe in the so-called rapture. I don't worry about a literal end of the world. I do worry about climate change and climate catastrophe. That is something that I worry about sometimes. That's a totally natural unknown in the future. And, And sometimes I think about it fearfully. But I think of this book in terms of a genre in literary studies we call dream vision. And I actually love dream vision. Hmm. There are Hmm. dream visions in medieval texts, too. Pilgrim's Progress, Piers Plowman. The Matrix is also a dream vision, by the way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I actually really like dream visions. I'm just interested in them as a window into psychological and emotional experiences. And to me... John of Potmos is using this genre as a way to think about history and politics, and I find it really fascinating. I also really love allegory, and I read the book as a political allegory, and that's what my first book of literature scholarship was about. So I like puzzling over allegories. It's, it's interesting to me, and I'm, I have to tell you, I'm not super emotionally connected to it. Ah, see, that makes a huge difference when you're truly thinking of it as a puzzle or a allegory, right? Yeah, I can see how that helps to remove the emotion and to think of it, use it as a way, a vehicle for thinking about something else. Yeah, it it does. Go ahead. Please continue. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I agree with you. I think John of Patmos is, is using it to talk about history and in particular politics. Yes, I agree with you on that for sure. And it's a really interesting, it's a visual way to talk about history and to think about it and feel about it at the same time. And I'm fascinated by that process. I like, I mean, I don't like all the visual images in it, but I am interested Mm -hmm. in the literary strategy of using visual images to think about politics or to about history. That process fascinates me. Mm hmm. I, I do also want to say in a minute, I, I want to read something from Permission Granted and, and ask you something about it. But before I do that, I wanted to say up front that I think this book can be interesting and powerful as a metaphor. I think that read literally, it can be damaging and destructive and dangerous, really dangerous. And I have a little bit more to say about that later, more concretely. But as allegory and metaphor, I find it interesting. That was an important comment to make. Thank you for making sure we got that in there up front. Up front. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about something that you say in Permission Granted. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just going to read right from the book. Okay. And you're helping us understand genre. Yes. So you say, and I bet a lot of people haven't thought about Revelation this way. You say this, apocalyptic literature was written for the underdogs whose oppression was so great and happening at the hand of such an overwhelming entity that it seemed that the only way their situation could be addressed was if God himself entered the scene and destroyed their enemies. And you you also say, I cannot overstate the importance of the political backdrop in understanding the context of apocalyptic writing. Whether the suffering they experienced was extreme financial oppression, overtaxation, unbearable interest rates, or persecution and executions, these people were trying to handle social, political, and economic realities that were too much to bear any longer. Can, can you just elaborate on that a bit? <laughs> I'm like, wow, I said that pretty well, didn't you I? You said that very well. You said it very it's almost, well. It's almost like I worked on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because this isn't my favorite topic normally, but I'm, I'm really actually glad that we're doing this and having a conversation about it. You know, I try to point students to certain passages in the book of Revelation and just look at it, look at these passages and think about how this is, you know, John or whoever's writing, the guy named John who's writing, he's thinking of real events. He's referring to real events. And sometimes he speaks of it fairly directly and sometimes just a little bit on the sly. You know, when he talks about, um, actually, I almost feel like I just want to go ahead and read part of the okay. passages as a way to end, as a way to show what I'm talking about. Go for it. At the be- Great. Yeah. At the beginning of Revelation, near the beginning of chapter one starting in verse 9. I'm just going to read this passage. I, John, your brother, who share with you the persecution, just that, like I like to pause students on that, share with you the persecution. This is an actual persecution that's happening because of the way Christians are misunderstood by their neighbors, right? And so they're being arrested and tried sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes just, you know, in unfair ways for things that people are associating with Christians simply because of the name or simply because of the community. They have misunderstandings about what these people are up to, right? So I share with you the persecution and the kingdom and the endurance in Jesus uh, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And a lot of people today hear that and say, you know, because we're devoted to God and because of our testimony trying to share Jesus. But actually, I think we need to flip it around instead of thinking of it as because I'm out there, you know, representing Christ and I'm out there, you know, making disciples of Christ. No, people are being arrested and misunderstood because of associating with this community, because of the language or the label, because of bearing witness to this community or this guy. So that language of testimony of Jesus, you know, I think today people often, many people at least, will hear, you know, my testimony is my, you know, how I came to know the Lord, right? And so then the next couple of verses, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. I try to say that like I'm a trumpet. I don't know. 
and That's send a good it to trumpet. the seven churches. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it lists seven towns, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And before I hand the mic back over to you, Jean, I just want to point out that all seven of these churches were or towns were in towns that were politically active mm. and they had a representative, they had a significant representation of the imperial cult in their town. And, you know, Ephesus won an award for it being so good at honoring the emperor two different years. And, you know, Pergamum is one of my favorite ancient sites to visit because of all the political pieces you can put into, you can see that are being referenced here in the book of Revelation that, that kind of all come together in the material world and the layout of the town and where the altar to the emperors is or the temple really to the emperors is. And it all just shifts from being a spiritual thing to being real people's daily lives is what this is referring to and talking about. I just think it's so exciting and so fun, really, to see the things come together that way. And I have so many stories in particular related to Pergamum, which we'll have to perhaps wait for another day. But this whole idea of this is about real people's experiences, you know, and I can read another passage maybe in just a minute. But, you know, this isn't about a spiritual battle at this point. This is really a reference to people's um, being misunderstood from the outside because of their association with the church. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Anytime I hear someone with a PhD in Near Eastern studies or biblical studies help me understand the political and cultural context, it's extremely illuminating. And one thing that I've heard you and many others talk about is how concrete it was for followers of the way to talk about a different kingdom. How threatening. Like, could there how can you think there would be something bigger than Rome or better than Rome, more powerful than the Roman emperor? And it really helps me understand how politically radioactive this is. I appreciate that. Hey, yeah. let's hey. go to a break. Okay, let's do that. Welcome back. Could we start again with another passage from Permission Granted? I'm on page 178, and this is irresistible. The beast. And yes. six, six, six. <laughs> right. This is just <laughs> irresistible. You can't talk about Revelation today without right. talking about that, right? You just Clarifying. can't. Yeah. yeah, you just can't. So talk to us about the beast. Yeah. Well, we have a couple things. One, we have an ongoing dream state, right, that's being described. And the evil characters, the people who were responsible for the persecution and the suffering are being described in the most heinous way or unpleasant or terrifying or something kind of a way. And so we have beasts, we have two different beasts, and they have multiple horns and they are described as being terribly unpleasant to look at and all kinds of things. So it's a way of saying 
this is our enemy. This is where the power rests and the problem for us as the people who are suffering. And the story ultimately leads to their downfall. That's the whole point of the story. But the beast and the number 666, that's really just a way of, it's not even code because everybody knows about this form of numerology where you assign the letters of the alphabet different numbers, different values, and you spell out someone's name and whatever the value of those letters are, you add that up. And that gives you, in this case, 666 or 616, depending on which way you spell Emperor Nero and his name. That was so game changing for me when I (laughs) learned about that. Was it? Yeah, because there are horror movies that have six, six, six in them. (laughs) Right? Actually, no, that is a number that scares me. Like if something comes up six, six, six randomly, I don't like that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Can you remind me what the name of that number practice is? It's numerology. Numerology. Or, or, or there's, um, there's another gematria. Word. I think that's people it. think of it in different ways. Yes, gematria. That's, that's the word that I was thinking of. And that, I mean, that just was so game changing. And that made perfect sense that someone's right. writing a political allegory and right. they don't want to be understood too readily. They want only some people to understand. And I, I want to give our listeners another example of a political allegory, and that would be George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yes. So someone using allegory to explore a political evil. Right. Right. And I, I, I have to say also, I really like this little part. So I'm reading from Revelation in chapter 13, and yeah. I'm... At line 18, I, I love that there are these little self-conscious moments in Revelation. So mm-hmm. here the writer says, this calls for wisdom. <laughs> Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number for a person. Its yeah. number is 666. And that's one of the places where the text tells you how to read it. And I love that. It's almost like a wink and a nod yes. to, to certain and- readers. Right. And of course, that is why people will say, oh, well, then the beast is Ronald Reagan, because this is how we can make his name add up to 66. Or, and people have done that over the centuries. Or whoever. Yeah. Putin. Yeah, right. 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 Exactly. We could find so many beasts. Right. 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 Um, but in their point, point in time, yes, he, this was, these were references to the different emperors. Can I ask you one question before we move on to the poem? Yeah. So we've talked before about how present day politicians use the idea of the beast or the mark of the beast to scare people and to make themselves sound like heroes and make themselves sound like they know something secret that not everybody knows and and that they can save, right, their followers. That's I mean, I think that's the purpose. So what I want to ask you is. Why is it so easy to pretend that imagery from Revelation applies to all kinds of present day things and then somehow get people believing you and acting on the bad information? Like this has happened so many times. Like, why do we not yet 
get that that's not the way to read this book. Do you have any comments? I do. And I'll try to keep it brief because I think I could go on for a while about this. So I appreciate this question. One, the reason we can keep doing this, finding people or events in time that we think it's pointing to is because the same kinds of human oppression by systems or people in power does keep happening over Mm. and over. So there's an element of this. There's a thread about certain ways that humans take advantage or abuse positions of power and things like that that do continue to happen over time. So that is a primary piece of what the writer of Revelation is rejecting and is trying to decry. The second piece of your question, I think, is that the other reason why people misunderstand is they're taught to think of this as something that will play out instead of seeing it as it's meant to offer courage and comfort to those who were suffering. At the point in time it was written, this wasn't a, this is about to take place in real life. This is a metaphorical or allegorical reference to you know, all the pieces pulled together, the belief that God sees their suffering, the belief that God is about to deliver them from it and start something new. And the depiction of the demise of their enemies was meant to give courage to hang on and was not meant to be you're about to see this unfold. Although I think some scholars might challenge me on that and and suggest that some did really think it was about to unfold sure, and that this sure. was a you know a general prediction but in in general it wasn't meant to be a playbook so much as god is hearing our cries just like god heard the cries of the israelites in captivity in egypt and just like he heard and kind of that kind of repetition of god is about to deliver god's people again yeah i hear you on that i know that there's a multitude of scholarly views one of the things that i do teach my students is that it's like in biblical studies, this is my view from the outside, right? That in, sure, bibl- yeah. in and this happens in literary studies too, though. But in s- more, maybe more interesting ways in biblical studies and more extreme, it's like a law of physics: for every force, there is an equal and opposite counterforce. <laughs> and like for any view of any biblical book or any view of an archaeological find. You will find another biblical scholar who will say something almost opposite or opposite with equal force. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Certainty is important in biblical studies. Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I would do so poorly as a biblical scholar. (laughs) I never have it. I never have it. I'm like that person in the middle of Dante's Inferno, like (laughs) understanding too many points of view. But right. Yeah, the postmodernist in me. Listen, before we read the poem, I should say a little something about Sherman Alexie. And then would you like to read the section of Revelation that the poem is making use of at the end there? Uh, I know that we've talked about Crow Testament before, so we're not going to try to trace out all the references. We're just really going to focus on that ending image because it's an apocalyptic image. It's right out of Revelation. So. Alexi is a contemporary writer from the Pacific Northwest, grew up on the Spokane Indian Reservation, and also has connections to the Kerdelen Nation, who's won lots of awards, and 
His poetry explores the struggle of contemporary Native Americans on and off the reservation to cope with the legacy of colonization and genocide and to build vital, joyful lives in the wake of historical trauma. I don't want to cast Indigenous people as victims because Native Americans are still here and what they're doing is surviving and thriving in many Mm -hmm. situations. Mm -hmm. So would you read that section and tell us a little bit about it before we read the poem, the the horse section? Sure. This is from Revelation chapter 6. And what we're seeing is a vision of, or what's being described, I should say, is a vision of four separate different colored horses with, and each is coming onto the scene and is being described as having control over some sort of aspect on earth. So for instance, the first horse was white and from the passage, its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. It's kind of vague, but you'll, you get the idea. So we keep going. The second horse was bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Awful, right? So that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. The third horse was black and it was exploiting people's labor and undermining their ability to make a living. All while protecting the elite's income. Mm. I mean, how that transcends that you know, uh, time sounds and recognizable. Place. Yeah. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. And so the fourth one is the one Alexi specifically refers to, as you indicated. And quoting from verse seven, uh, when the seal was broken, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Wow. Yeah. Always. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. Really hard-hitting, very intense. And from one intensity to another. Exactly. Let me read Crow Testament. 1. Cain lifts Crow, that heavy black bird, and strikes down Abel. Damn, says Crow, I guess this is just the beginning. 2. The white man, disguised as a falcon, swoops in and yet again steals a salmon from Crow's talons. Damn, says Crow. If I could swim, I would have fled this country years ago. 3. The crow god, as depicted in all of the reliable crow bibles, looks exactly like a crow. Damn, says crow, this makes it so much easier to worship myself. 4. Among the ashes of Jericho, crow sacrifices his firstborn son. Damn, says Crow, a million nests are soaked with blood. Five, when crows fight crows, the sky fills with beaks and talons. Damn, says Crow, it's raining feathers. Six, Crow flies around the reservation and collects empty beer bottles, but they are so heavy he can only carry one at a time. So, one by one, 
He returns them, but gets only five cents a bottle. Damn, says Crow, redemption is not easy. Seven. Crow rides a pale horse into a crowded powwow, but none of the Indians panic. Damn, says Crow. I guess they already live near the end of the world. So, Jennifer, we've read this poem and talked about it together before. What strikes you today? Oh, goodness. I'm st- I mean, I'm trying to stay on point here, but every stanza of this, yeah. you know, strikes me differently than it did the first time around. Mm-hmm. And and I like that about poetry and writing. But something about this, the crow rides a pale horse into a crowd and nobody panics. Mm-hmm. You know, is that because, right, I mean, they already, they're already dealing with this. This isn't yeah. new. We've, we've saw this coming. We've been waiting for this. You know, what is that anyway? I just, it makes me think of dread that it makes me think of all these things that have been done to, to negative peoples in the name of some sort of cross bearing community or yeah. whatever. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, um, how effective or in a sense, how profound it is that he's lifting these lines and so make and meshing them so seamlessly, really, with native stories. What about you? I actually find the tone surprisingly light at the end of the poem. And when I picture myself in the poem, if I picture myself as someone at the powwow and I'm looking at other people, looking at the Indians at the powwow and the pale horse rides in and I picture the Indians feeling like, oh yeah, whatever. There it is. Because they know it. They've been living mm-hmm. it for mm-hmm. centuries. Mm-hmm. And so they've, they've actually already, I mean, Native American peoples have already gone through the apocalypse. They lived through the end of the world as they knew it. And I told you I had to talk about the REM song, and then I knew it would come up. <laughs> you just referenced it. I yes, did. did. I did. <laughs> um, it's the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Uh-huh. And I, I feel like that's the tone of the poem. And I also yeah. think it's a helpful way to understand apocalyptic literature that it's not about a literal end of the world, end of the planet but an end of an epoch, the end of the world as we know it. But life goes on. There's another epoch coming up right behind it. And exactly. that's, that's how it feels to me. I mean, the world as Native people knew it before Europeans has ended. They lived through it, and now they're going on. Yeah. I find that a helpful reference back to what I think the ancient writers were trying to say in the midst of all the gore, right? And all the militaristic celebration of devastation of your enemies, yada, yada, and all the violence. But that when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, there isn't a destruction of the planet, right? It is simply a just kingdom descends from the heavens and something new begins. It's We're not destroying the planet. We are talking about a new heaven on earth, a new Jerusalem on the, you know, so a new city of God, however yeah. you want to talk about what that means. Is, right. You know, and of course, we, 
We know we can get in trouble talking about a new city of God or right. a city on the hill, <laughs> right? We, we know that that rhetoric has led to a lot of very bad behavior. Yes. So, yeah, we, we can do that. But like you, I really um, appreciate also, I mean, there is this devastation and destruction and monsters and horror and a new heaven and a new earth. And there's the, there's the new vision piece. Right. So listen, we could, I could talk with you about Revelation all day, but how about if we leave it at that and we'll come back to this. I like doing this part one, part two, because we always have more to say and we can say it next time. It's perfect. And yes, very helpful for me to talk about it literarily with you as compared to literally as I used to think of it. And I know some people are taught to think of it. So thank you. This was really helpful, clarifying content today. Thank you as well. And thank you, listeners. And we'll talk to you next time. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.